everybody, welcome to season three of the Archimist podcast, which is an extension of my blog, Archimist in the Making. I'm your host, Kimberly Ho, the millennial who finds interest in anything and everything with regards to architecture. So first of all, welcome back everybody. And it's good to see or have you listening to these conversations. So a little bit of a premise for season three, as you have heard from our episode with Gina, and that is we're now starting to interview people who have accomplished quite a lot of interesting things. And given the whole current pandemic situation, we thought it would be interesting to ask this question, is this what you wanted? So we're going to be looking at people who have had different journeys, whether they're still in or out of architecture. So kicking off season three, I have one of my former tutors and mentors, Yvonne Meng, and she is one of the directors and co-founders of Circles Studio Architects. And I thought it would be really nice to just have her as the starting person for our conversation. And so before we start, Yvonne, can I please get you to introduce yourself to everybody? <laughs> All right. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me. Um, so yes, my name is Yvonne Meng, um, Director of Circle Studio Architects. So we're a small practice. I'm primarily doing residential work in Melbourne. I'm also a um, PhD candidate at Monash University. So I've been doing that for a couple of years now. So there's still about a year or so left. We'll see how that goes. And um, I've also been teaching at Monash and Melbourne Uni and a little bit at RMIT as well for actually over the past 10 years. So it's been quite a while. And I guess that's how I met you, Kim, in um, one of the comm classes, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It was quite a while ago now. I forget how long it has been, especially like sometimes just looking back at some things, it feels so recent, even like when I'm, it's only when I'm tutoring first years that I look back and think about the things that they're doing in comparison to what I've done. And I think, oh my gosh, has it been really six or seven years <laughs> since, since this, like since I was in your class as well, but I can't believe you've actually been teaching for 10 years because I don't know, but it just feels like you're always bringing in really fresh ideas. <laughs> it is so. pretty shocking. Um, I started teaching in 2010, so this is my 10th year. Oh, um, wow. I've been teaching longer than I've actually been at university <laughs> myself. So. Definitely. But before we start, I guess I want to ask, like, how have things been for you? Um, just because I think both of us were currently in lockdown at the moment, unfortunately. <laughs> But yeah, how are things going for you? Um, are you finding things a little bit challenging or it's relatively smooth sailing? Looks, it's been challenging, but more to do with not knowing what's going on out there. So obviously we're all in our little five kilometre radius bubble, which can be nice sometimes. I don't have to travel, but in terms of work, um, I don't see my business partner much at all, even though she lives a block down the street. So not having that face-to-face -face contact, not being able to go into uni, I'm teaching some classes on Zoom. So it's all like my world is, well, everyone's world is just reduced to this tiny little, you know, whatever your four walls are. So I, I'm finding the isolation quite hard. And I think I've always been someone who's been very busy. So, you know, there was, along with all the teaching and the working and all that sort of stuff, I did, I did pottery classes, I did circus classes. So I was always out and yeah. then sort of being like, told I can't do any of that that's been like oh, oh, no. I'm okay 
I'm okay. That's good. I I've think been busy, so it's good. Yeah, I think if you're not busy, it's really hard to just sit with your own thoughts as well. Because I was having this conversation with my friend, and we were talking about how when you're isolated in a spot, it's so easy to start feeling really overwhelmed by the silence that is around you as well and so yeah the only thing that I think that has been keeping me sane is just by doing a lot of things at once may not be the healthiest but it's one way to shut things down anyhow perhaps to kickstart the conversation or like this season maybe first to tell me a little bit about life before architecture like what were the elements or any factors in particular that pointed you to studying architecture in particular or did you have something else before um I actually started off in creative arts so when I graduated um I did a year at Melbourne Uni in well creative arts and I was uh planning to major in visual arts with a minor in theater studies I guess after after six months, I realised it really wasn't for me. I didn't feel like I was getting enough out of the course. So I just kind of applied for other things. And um, I applied for, I think law was in there, media communications, architecture was in there. Mm-hmm. And um, I got into architecture at RMIT and Melbourne and then I decided to go for RMIT because I'm like, I've had enough of this place. I'm going to a different institution. <laughs> um, but then I took a year off and went travelling. So that was quite good. I came into architecture after a couple of years of other things post high school. So I think that gave a pretty good perspective. And then during studies, um, I did six months in Berlin and then did also did some travelling. So I tried to break it up a little bit because as we all know, it gets quite intense and we all go a little bit mad, <laughs> um, which is pretty all. Yeah. And after I graduated, which was um, in 2009, I worked for a practice called Studio 505 for mm-hmm. a bit over a year and then went into uh, the city of Melbourne as an architect there. So that was quite a, re- a really interesting period for me as well because uh, you're working as an architect in-house and working from the side of local government, which was a perspective I think I didn't really get in other practices. So that was quite good. Hmm. And I think after four years there, I decided to start my own practice. Oh. So, yeah, that's kind of the career tra- trajectory. So. Yeah, I don't know because the thing is visual arts, I don't think many people who have been taught by you would know this personal history as well. You're probably now that I'm because I'm keeping count, right? You're probably the fourth person now who I've met who started something off in visual arts, which is really different and it's kind of nice to hear. But at the same time, I find it quite funny that it seems to be architecture sometimes seems to be the end goal because back in high school I remember my art teachers who I've been talking to they said that if you're going to choose art sometimes we try to hold it in and not become a teacher towards the end because it feels like it's a last resort but (laughs) I feel like now architecture when I'm not being condescending or degrading our profession by the way but it just feels like architecture is now the end goal for a lot of people who have started off in creative arts as well. I didn't sort of set out in school to say I want to be an architect I think at one point I wanted to be but it wasn't ever it wasn't ever a dream when I was in high school I think I wanted to wear a beret and live in Paris and like be <laughs> like a you know really a fancy artist but that never happened obviously yeah but I think in the end it kind of suited me quite well because there is that creative aspect and I I don't know I think I can be quite anal sometimes <laughs> that maybe that aspect kind of worked well with me too so I guess Looking back, I don't know if I wasn't doing architecture, I don't know what I would be doing. Yeah. Maybe I would, but 
look, it ended up working out fine. It's but I'm glad I didn't end up going into law, which was the other option. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, my friend, before she started architecture, she was sitting in her room and she's actually struggled between picking law and architecture. I think like I did consider law for five seconds, but then my friends were saying like, I think you'd be, they had the similar reason as to why I shouldn't be a psychologist. And they said that I'm going to be crying over people's problems rather than helping them. <laughs> So yeah, I think for me, architecture, I was very similar to you where I didn't think that I would pick architecture. It To me, it was actually kind of a last resort or it was my mom's attempt to curb me from doing fashion design as Ooh, well. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if it's like uh, my culture that is like where arts is always a bit of a risk, like if you decide to do something in the creative industry, you're generally known as the risk taker and a lot of family members will have a lot of doubts, but that's completely fine. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> during your architecture practice though, like, what was that like for you uh, in terms of the difference between uni as well as work culture? Because a lot of the conversations, actually one of the conversations that actually kickstarted this idea was people discussing about how they found themselves at crossroads as well. So. <laughs> I don't know if that was something like that for you or it just felt like a very natural transition. Um, I think a bit of both. Um, I think each time I've made major decisions according to what I'm going to do next has been a result of being at a crossroad. But at the same time, I think I always had an idea of what I wanted to do. So if I, if I was, say, you know, in third year architecture school looking at what I'm doing now, I'd say I'm doing exactly what I wanted to be doing. Mm. Having said that, now that I am doing it, it's very different <laughs> to what I expected it to be like. Yeah. So on paper, it, to me as a 21-year-old, it would have looked, you know, very nice. I'm, I've got my own practice. I've been teaching a while, had a lot of experience there, and um, I'm doing a PhD and, you know, I live in a, you know, a nice suburb. I have a dog and I'm married and everything's lovely. But I think when you sort of talk about it from what the day-to-day experience is, Sometimes it is hard to piece all of those things together and the experience of it is very different. And I think I've chosen a path that um, isn't particularly easy. Mm. I find it quite challenging to split my attention over different things. But at the same time, that's what I set out to do. But I guess I don't advise it for anyone who likes regularity and likes kind of knowing um, with some certainty where their paycheck is going to come from and how much work they need to do for a week because you know it this kind of scenario is quite precarious and um you know if you do have to hustle a lot too so mm. if you're directing your own practice you have to hustle for your clients if you're doing a phd that's all self-directed research and yeah. there's not really someone there's not really a boss telling you you know you need this report done by five o'clock or you need these details done by friday that's kind of all on you so there's a lot of um, self-initiative there and sometimes I really don't feel like I have it especially in pandemic situations Um, so yeah the precariousness is hard but look I can't fault myself for not giving it a shot but sometimes it really does feel like I'm not doing it very well (laughs) (laughs) would you say then you're somebody who is quite goal oriented because I think I can relate to you on a certain level where I've got 5,000 things that I want to do at once, but at the same time, it feels so overwhelming as well, because sometimes you want to do these things, but it's very hard to get started. But if I tell myself that I have a certain reward or like, it's going to help me grow 
towards end by the time I accomplish it, then I would do those things. So I don't know if having a goal or do you, are there goals in the things that you've been doing? Sorry, that was a bit uh, of a roundabout way of asking. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I think um, I, I am probably maybe a little bit of an overachiever. Maybe. <laughs> um, so there is that the trap of wanting to do everything and wanting to do everything to a reasonable level and mm. um, then realising that there's only so much time in the day for something's got to give. And I think the, um, the older I get, the more I realise that sometimes, well, probably quite a lot of the time, you just need to say no and prioritise what's actually really important and reflect on that. So yeah, when I was a grad, I was doing Imagine as well and um, I was running process and I was on a bunch of committees and Lord knows how I had the time to do that. <laughs> and um, so slowly I'm trying to get better at not feeling like I have to do everything to prove myself and mm. understanding that there are a few things I want to try and do well and they're the things I'm going to focus on and that, and just maybe pick a couple of goals rather than try to kick everything because I got quite tired actually and I did kind of have a few sort of massive um, wig outs because I literally just did not have enough time in the day to try and do things. So I think sort of recognising when to slow down is a really good skill too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying really hard to do that, <laughs> but it's not easy, believe me. Like I, my friend is now keeping tabs on me when I'm actually taking a break because I keep saying that I promise I'll be on a break. She's like, really? but you're doing these things. Yeah. I did a talk at the start of the year before um, we all got, you know, put under house arrest um, at Women in Construction, mm. um, at one of their um, drink nights. And um, I think that was at a turning point where I said to myself, look, I need to stop. And um, I think basically uh, two women came up and spoke before me and they were talking about their career directory and all the things that they're doing. And I basically got up and said, I'm, I need to stop and I think there needs to be a time to recognise when to do less. Yeah. I haven't necessarily lived by that completely, but I am <laughs> trying to. <laughs> I mean, you did say you like to overachieve things, so I think yeah. it's taking a while <laughs> from getting there. But you talked about, like, turning points, right? So I'm – okay, this I, – I won't put this on air, but we I know the reason why you started your own practice – but it went through several changes. And I was wondering, like, you don't, you don't have to talk about the backstory. It's completely fine. But yeah, like, yeah. what started um, Von Atelier? Because previously it was known as Von Atelier, if I remember correctly. And then now it's changed to Circle Studio Architects. And what were those turning points as well? Because for me, when I found out it changed names, I was taken by surprise. But it was a nice surprise to see because it, it seems like a new start or... Yeah, I guess, um, so Bon Atelier was basically me, the solo practitioner. So I um, left my job at City of Melbourne after I got registered. And then when I set up my practice, it was a process of trying to find a business name that, you know, didn't sound, that sounded, you know, like something that I would like. And because of that, my name was pulled into it. So Von is what my friends call me out of my nickname. So that kind of was a natural um, name to pick. But when I worked for a few years, I sort of realised that I needed help at some point. And at one point, um, a former student of mine um, came and started doing some work for me. So she actually lives down the road. So she's now my business partner. And um, she's great. And she 
I guess came into the into working for me um, after having um, had quite a few years as an exhibition designer at, at a gallery in Darwin and um, she's sort of had you know this whole sort of wealth of knowledge and really good experience in a field other than architecture so she came in as a mature age student so we ended up working really well together and she'd always said oh I want to have my own practice and I said I don't want to do this by myself anymore so that's when and we joined forces mm. and then at that point it was sort of we were looking at restructuring the business because as a sole practitioner the setup's quite different to setting up as a company which is what we wanted to do mm-hmm. and it didn't really make sense for the business to have my name in it anymore because it was now two of us and we wanted something that encompassed um, something that we could both um, identify with and it wasn't just based on one person's name and I hadn't been established for really long enough. It was only maybe two years after I changed that mm. I felt that I needed to keep the business name. So we just sort of said, right, we're rebranding, calling it something that doesn't have anyone's name in it. So if the business does change, grow, contract, or bring on other people, we're not attaching it to one person's identity. Mm. So um, hence the change in the name. And the name Circle was actually a funny one because um, we were sitting down, my husband and I were sitting around the kitchen table going oh god I really need to think of a name it's really <laughs> difficult and how do you come up with a name that just sounds stupid that's already been done and um he was telling me this story this funny story about a colleague of his who was involved with um I think dealing with international students and he was telling us about how she had a a student who um, decided to pick his own name um, pick his own English name and he picked circle and we just thought that was such a fabulous name and I'm like, that would be a really great name for an architecture studio. So, yeah. um, but I think when we sort of analysed it, we're like, oh yeah, it could, you know, it means something whole, it means something without hierarchy. We sort of then post-rationalised it into something that we thought could work. Mm. It, forgive me for saying this, but when you said, when I first heard of Circle, like the first thing I was thinking of, it's like, because he, okay, I'm sorry, I do follow you on Instagram, but um <laughs> Because you did a bit of circus training, and I remember some of the impressive ones was you with the hula hoop, like doing the the acrobatics oh, yes. of it. And so the first thing when I saw circle, I'm like, yeah, I, I can see that. That was like my association with the name circle at the oh, start. Oh, that's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's one to remember, I guess. But that wasn't yeah. the reasoning, but you know, that's a nice association. <laughs> Who knows? But I think it's there's something really poetic about the way of not attaching your name to the company as well. Because for me personally, sometimes when I look at architects' names, it's really interesting to see how it first starts off. I I wonder like if those companies have started is because it starts off with a sole practitioner or like a duo and such. That's why you've got a lot of firms' names that are generally attaching their surnames with it. But then as it grows, I don't know how do we perceive that anymore because I find that sometimes when we look at magazines, we see, we see the term the team at this firm or the team mm. at these firms. And so, yeah, I think there's something really, really nice about that as well so I think I never really liked having the name and even when I had Von Atelier I was always slightly uncomfortable with it being my name yeah but at the time I because I was by myself it was just something that happened but I always liked the idea that um if I'm not with Circle anymore then someone else can take ownership over it and Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have to be you know like for example Alana Hill's not with Alana Hill anymore but it's her name and you know, I'd find that frustrating if I had nothing to do with it. 
yeah. anymore. So, yeah, yeah, so I guess it's about sort of being able to, um, you know, have for whoever works with you to have some sort of ownership to the identity and not, and I never really, I never like the idea of staff tech anyway. We all know that mm. these things take a multitude of people and energy for it to happen and there's never just one person drawing on a paper napkin. And I would say like staff techs, there's that risk of pigeon holing somebody as well like um i think for me to this day it's the story that stuck with me was about zaha who did how she wanted to do other things but because she was so well known for a particular style that it's really hard for her to move out of the constraints that the public has known her mm. as so i think there's a reason why like nowadays in uni we don't really talk about architects as much like we do talk about them because they generally laid down the ground rules of like certain theories and principles that we learn from, but not necessarily, I guess, like the architecture style in particular, like we're mm. now taught to analyze these things. So. Yeah, I think that's really great. Cause I think we definitely got a bit of architect um, teachings when I went through, um, you know, we learned about, you know, who the greats were and what their projects were, or maybe it was a particular firm, but you know, I think there's just so much more to that is, you know, even attributing work to just one firm overlooks the fact that there's a builder involved and there's engineers involved and there's a whole other team of consultants that have put that thing to into the world. Mm. So it's not just the designer either. So I think, you know, that kind of thinking about hierarchy needs to change as well. Yeah. If it hasn't already. <laughs> well we don't know how long that's going to take but yeah okay now we're talking about uni so I might as well just ask you sorry out there sorry <laughs> what got you into teaching because this is something I've always wanted to know from each tutor is what inspired you to teach at the first place I think I just wanted to like it wasn't um as a student all the tutors seemed so glamorous <laughs> like I don't know, you sort of sit in design class and go, oh, I really want to do this one day, that'd be really cool. And then mm. I guess when um, I graduated and then the um, opportunity came up to do assistant tutoring for first years, I just took it because it just, I think, you know, as a student, you always saw it with rose-coloured glasses, oh, you know, you're just kind of putting out ideas and you're sort of directing, you know, where projects could go, it could all be amazing. And I think I probably sucked for the first few years quite badly <laughs> because we're not trained in teaching necessarily. So... Um, there was a lot of learn as you go, but I think it was, I can't pinpoint exactly the reason why, just that I always really liked the idea of it. And um, I had, I guess, when I was younger, worked in teaching um, um, children with autism as well. So there was that kind of, you know, there was that kind of um, background in liking to impart things with people that I guess I sort of harnessed upon later on. Wow. Oh my gosh, I just learned so many things about you today, which is great. So would you say then, I know you don't, you might not like me talking about this, but do you think that teaching has partially inf like convinced you to do PhD then? Like yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think I never really left uni in that sense. So <laughs> I never physically left uni in that sense. I had a year off. But, um, so I think always being in the academic environment as a sessional, so coming in a couple of times a week, always leads, leaves you with that exposure. So you sort of hear the conversations that are happening still in lecture theatres and um, see what's happening. And then there is, 
I guess a little bit of escapism as well from the realities of practice sometimes when you do go and teach, you get to think of some really lofty, like unbuildable ideas that when you're drawing up toilets in <laughs> an office, you don't necessarily get to think about. So I guess I liked that idea of being able to think big, but also sort of being able to have my foot in practice at the same time. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I really envy that because... I want to keep learning because I just find that the more I learn and then as I teach, I'm also learning at the same time mm. myself as well. So I think there's something nice about just putting that extra effort, although it does take quite a lot of energy in it, which again, I still don't know how you can do it, but <laughs> you're doing an amazing job on it as well. And so, yeah. Okay. Then the big question I would probably ask you is, looking back at it now before I might ask another topic is, do you think this is what you've wanted so far at this point in your life? <laughs> yes and no. Yes in that I'm in the middle of doing it and no that I haven't done it yet. So, <laughs> um, you know, I would love to have... You know, thinking back, I would love to have maybe started my PhD a little bit earlier so I'd be finished by now, that kind mm. of um, So I think um, in do, trying to do a practice, teach and do a PhD and all these other things, um, everything is a lot slower because you're dividing your energy across more things. So, you know, I haven't been able to finish things as quickly as I'd like necessarily because... Um, you know, you've got to try and get all these tasks off your plate. So in that sense, I don't feel like I'm quite there yet. But then having said that, I don't think I'll ever feel like I'm quite there yet because you're always in the middle of it. And if you're always, if you've always set yourself goals and maybe if they're always shifting, then um, there is that sense. And that's, I think, a mentality that I need to work on as well. It's just mm. sort of celebrate the wins a little bit more and not, and when you do hit your goals, you know, yeah. race and enjoy it rather than shift them again. So yeah. I think that's something um, that's something that I think a lot of architects and a lot of people who sort of go into academia, for example, um, probably do as well in the way that there's always, there's always something to do so you don't necessarily s stay back and enjoy what you've already achieved. Yeah. But how would you think, like, in terms of celebrating certain moments? Because now, given that we live in a society that is based on efficiency I think we are now so reliant on the term being efficient mm. that it's very hard for us to pause as well oh yeah I hate that um I oh, I think if anything about this pandemic what, what it's done for me is that it's it's forced me to um be more efficient so I can pause a bit more mm. and there are times when things you just need to kind of push through some really difficult times and kind of work out your time efficiently. Um, but there are also times that you're forced to kind of really stop and slow down because everything else around you is slowed down. And I find that quite hard to deal with sometimes because I like things going at a certain pace and when they don't, I get nervous and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not producing enough. I'm not being efficient. I'm not contributing to the world. And I think we all just need to get over that. I feel that that notion is a very... I don't know, I think that for me currently now, it, like in your early 20s, between your 20s and your 30s, it's always about whether you're fulfilling enough for your life mm. because um, there's this glorification of being nostalgic about your accomplishments, but we forget about the simple things. Mm. And that's why like we're always trying to do a lot of things. 
And then I would like to think it's also social media now that, like, I'm trying not to look at Instagram as much as I used to. Because <laughs> I just find that the more I look at it, the more I'm just, like, beating myself up and thinking, I need to keep doing things. But I do have things to do. I just don't think about it because I'm constantly comparing myself. Yeah, is... it's a trap. And I think being in a very visual um, profession where people post up beautiful photos of projects that they've done and it, and it can be quite hard not to feel like, why am I not doing that? But I guess the thing to remember and that I also keep telling myself as well is that everyone moves at a different pace. Yeah. Don't compare yourself to other people. You've always got your own path and your own drum to beat and if it takes you a little bit longer or if it doesn't take you as long that's fine mm. like that's your story not anyone else's mm. it's hard to live by too sometimes especially when you're being bombarded with all these things that are happening and you know there's been millions of studies millions but lots of studies done on kind of the detriment that social media scrolling <laughs> to your mental health too so yeah tell you one thing get get oh, okay so I, we got a dog at the start of the year and now my Instagram is just full of dogs. I don't really engage with that much architecture anymore and it's been great. Yeah. I've pushed all the, I don't know, it sounds terrible, but I've pushed like all the architecture pages, except for some of my favourite ones, like onto my blog Instagram and then my personal Ooh. Instagram is just like really pretty ceramics, if not flowers, if not animals. It's just mainly cats and foxes. And yeah, it's really makes you feel good and it's great. I know, but it's like you want to feel like, I feel like it's also your new source that it's so hard to just separate yourself from it. Yeah, well. yeah. Okay, maybe the last one before I perhaps, we might have to edit this out if you don't feel comfortable talking yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, okay, it's the Paula article. <laughs> okay, it was, so the reason why you were also one of the people I wanted to invite you on was because a few weeks ago I was sitting in the Paula discussion about diversity and Sonia from Red Black Atelier was talking about, and then she mentioned your article, which actually catalyzed a lot of the further discussions as well, because now that we've talked about social media, and I think it's a nice segue into media as well, and I just wanted to ask what made this article happen as well in particular? Oh, goodness, how to answer this. Because maybe it's just, sorry to not put you, sorry for putting you on the spot for a little bit, but to be honest, reading that article a little later, because when I first saw it, I read through it once, but it didn't really occur to me because I wasn't as involved yet or my mind hasn't matured to accept that type of conversation but then as I've gone on later in the stages of my unis like my architecture studies I I don't know what happened but one day I just decided to like just took my notes out and just wrote this huge page about like how sometimes I hate being stereotyped or mm. like it's these types of things and so yeah and I feel like your your article has catalyzed a lot of people thinking about these things as well so <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's nice to hear because um, I, I mean, I wrote that four years ago now, so it feels like it was quite a quite a while. Yeah. And I'm actually quite surprised that it's got brought up again recently. So that's also nice to hear that it had a bit of reach. Um, I guess you sort of uh, framed it as brave. I didn't, I didn't necessarily think it was brave. I think I was just feeling like I had something that I wanted to say and. I think, to be honest, I had started writing that um, probably quite a few months before I finished it. And 
it was similar to you. I just sort of wrote down a few points that were really bugging me mm. at the time. Um, one of them being that, um, you know, we go through studies and it's a pretty diverse um, student body. But then once I got into the workforce and once especially seeing people who are in the higher levels, it, that diversity got stripped back a lot. And we were talking so much about gender at the time, like, you know, all that stuff with Paul was coming out and it was really good to see. And then there was all these conversations about women in the workforce and um, equal pay and opportunity and um, trying to... Um, mitigate the stereotype that had been happening for a really long time and then I thought well actually when you also look at these sorts of issues there's also the issue of um, diversity in terms of cultural diversity Mm. and I often did sort of find myself especially when I was involved in industry events and I think it has changed you know yeah now that there weren't that many people of color in the room Mm -hmm. and I was always quite conscious of that and it's not to say that I felt you know scared or nervous but it was just sort of something that was there it's like oh well it's another room full of mostly men and pretty much all white people and um, so and I think there are a few things which sort of came up in um in practice and in daily life that weren't big things but there are enough kind of small things that kind of made you want to sort of say well hang on is this a common occurrence or is it just me and but um, I think I went back and finished writing it. And um, and I was actually quite surprised when I put it out there that um, quite a few people sort of felt the same and it kind of generated a bit of a response from people who were culturally diverse working in architecture who maybe felt like they had been stereotyped negatively so that career opportunities that were they were perfectly capable for, maybe they were missed for or maybe they were stereotyped in doing certain types of work. Mm. Um, so, yeah, and I think one of the stories which really stuck with me were um, two people who um, of Asian background who quit their architecture jobs to start up a cafe because they were they didn't think that they would get very far in their practices because of who they were. And I think that, for me, was really, really sad. And mm. I guess I did question sometimes my own role in my office at the time you know how far could I get because of my ethnicity and that's a really shit thing to think about because it's not something that um you want to tarnish your future career prospects so I don't know I don't know what um what the stats are now but I think it's a conversation that um still still needs to be had and I guess um while I'm while I'm you know, pleased that it still gets spoken about now, I don't think there's enough really that mm. gets spoken about. I feel like it's always kind of bubbling under the surface. People touch upon it and say, well, isn't this kind of not very good? But in terms of the advocacy for it, um, you know, there are other things that sort of seem to take center stage more. Yeah. And I think it is a hard one to advocate for as well. I think when I sent it out to Parler, I was a bit nervous about having it out there because I didn't want to be branded as the the diversity girl because mm. you don't want to be that person, you know, the, yeah. and it just made me feel a bit ick. Yeah. And I did do a few talks after that being the diversity girl. I'm like, oh, shit, well, this is kind of happening now. <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, if, you, if no one talks about it, then how's it ever going to be brought to the fore and how, yeah. how do we address it if we don't know if it's a problem and... You know, I think it's they're good conversations to have. Yeah, I would agree with you on that, especially like um, just because 
for me, when I started this podcast, what surprised me was some people saying the fact that I just did the podcast without thinking so much about, like, because um, of my background and as well as I'm a girl and then just starting these conversations. And I, I didn't think anything, but it kind of just made me surprised that that was some of the thoughts that people had when I start this as well, just because I'm Asian and the fact that I can talk about these things. Like, it just felt really strange. And yeah, I think this topic is a very hard one to navigate because everybody has very different opinions about how it should be navigated. And so that's why sometimes I'm asking myself, I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to mediate this conversation? So that just to try and ensure that everybody's voices is heard and such. But I don't have any answers to how you can deal with it because you're right like everyone's got a different opinion on how it's dealt with and it is quite uncomfortable Mm. Um, if you do bring it up then you don't want to run the risk of alienating people because you're saying well because things are done like this it's a racist no one likes to hear that no one likes that word so Mm. you kind of you end up sort of walking around in eggshells a lot around it but I think you just kind of need to remove the stigma of um, it being a valid conversation to talk about if we can talk about gender in very mature very kind of practical you know action driven ways and why not talk about equality in other forms and that's not just race but it's also um you know sort of sexuality it's also disability it's age i mean yeah. age is something that we don't talk about at yeah. all that's a massive mm-hmm. massive problem so you know it's just it's just about recognizing that there are other forms of inequality this so happens to be one that's closer to me because of my cultural background. So I can speak to it more than I can to, you know, sexuality, for example, but you know, there's still, there's still conversations that need to be had. And I think perhaps when you start to focus on one person's problems, then you ignore everyone else's. So I think we need to be a lot more open about all all sorts of conversations. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is a really nice way to just close off the conversation as well. Um, Maybe this is something we'd like to introduce for the rest of our guests, like our future guests is, do you have something you'd like to say to yourself? So like a letter to yourself to the past or to the future? (laughs) Okay, to my past, uh, don't be so hard on yourself and uh, stop to smell the roses. And... uh, it's okay to say no and um, because some of those things just really don't matter. Um, doesn't matter what people think of you, just, just, do, just do your own thing and be fine with it. Um, in the future, um, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I think that's very nice. Anyhow, Vaughn, any closing, other closing comments that you'd like to say or like um, any social media handles that you'd like us to mention, um, we will put this in the notes. Um, I'll just put in Circle Studio, the social media handle. We're not on Facebook because it's just too many social media things. I don't know. The interest fine. But um, other closing comments, I'm just, yeah, thanks for having me. And it's been really great to sort of talk openly about things. I think usually in interviews you sort of get asked about, you know, projects or particular topics and it's, you know, to talk about, uh, it's just, I guess, meander through a few different 
issues or what makes you do what you do I think it's quite nice so thank you no worries thanks again for being the first guest and we're really really happy to have you here um but yeah for everybody thank you for joining us uh season three yay and as always please subscribe if you haven't already or if you've got any other ideas you'd like to pitch to us please let us know at Alchemist in the Making on Instagram and we'll see you next time bye bye <laughs>